All right, if you would please uh, open up your Bible to John chapter 9. We've been making our way through the seven signs in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're making our way down the list. Today we make it to uh, number six in the uh, list of uh, seven signs. And uh, we'll be finishing up very soon, getting ready for um, looking towards Lent and Easter and all the things coming up in the calendar. But uh, we're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 9. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 8. But I do hope you'll keep the Bible open because we're going to be making reference to uh, many other passages as well. If you would please stand. This is a reading from God's Word, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would please bless our friends at church. We, we do think, Father, of David and Marlene Wamsley. We think of Cherry Leslie, and we think, Father, of her grieving family, and especially uh, the uh, parents of this 27-year-old uh, Holden Jorner who was killed. Uh, please, gracious God, wrap your arms of love around them, we pray. And Father, please send your Spirit upon all of us that all of us, Father, might have eyes wide open to see and believe and obey and rejoice for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, please uh, keep the Bible open to John chapter 9. Uh, starts on page 895 in the Pew Bible, or you may have your own Bible online or in person. It'd be great if you'd have it open in front of you. So you'll see I'm not banking any of this up. I'm trying to pull it out of the Bible as we make our way through this passage. Um, growing up in Mississippi many, 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 many years ago, uh, I was raised on a farm. And um, one of our favorite things to do, my kid brother and me and our friends, playmates who'd come over from time to time, was to play uh, chase in the dark. Uh, it's hard to do that in the town. There's lights everywhere, and, and uh, it's not always easy to find a dark place. But out in the country, in Mississippi, in the 60s, you could find such a place. And so we would be out in the middle of the country, and we would play chase. And it was one of our favorite games to play. Uh, my sons played this game when they were in Boy Scouts. They did a version where they would go out to a campout and would play one form of chase or another in the dark, hiding in the woods and in the trees. And 
their version was pretty sophisticated. They managed to find all kinds of ways to camouflage themselves and hide very successfully in the dark. But the idea was you're running around and you're trying to find your way by sounds and, and uh, uh, different kinds of clues. When you bump into someone or sense someone's presence, uh, you're, you're kind of playing the game. And uh, it reminded me of what we're looking at today. Uh, not in the sense of a game, because the man we're about to meet was not playing a game. It was very much real life for him. But he lived his life in that sort of perpetual darkness. He was born blind. Uh, John emphasizes this point. He, he had not been um, injured and lost his sight. This man had been born blind. And, and it's referred to a couple of times in the passage. Uh, in verse 1, verse 2, again in verses 19, 20, and 32. Over and over again it's underscored that this man had never seen his entire life. I know there are people sitting here in the congregation this morning who know about blindness and know about the reality of someone who has lived with that reality their whole life. And that was this man. He was born this way. In John chapter 9, verse 1, all we read is that Jesus passed by this man. Uh, in some of the other healings of blind people, like Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus saw Jesus, or didn't see Jesus, he was blind, but he heard Jesus was coming, and he called out, Lord Jesus, heal me. Bartimaeus sought Jesus' attention. But here in this story, uh, the blind man, as far as we can tell, is unaware of Jesus. In fact, he doesn't seem to know much about Jesus. All we know, according to verse 1, is as Jesus passed by, Jesus saw him. He couldn't see Jesus. Jesus saw him. A man blind from birth. What an interesting story. And what we're going to look at in this whole chapter is revolving around what starts here in verse 1. The whole story that Jesus uh, is involved in, the whole story that John tells, revolves around this miracle. And it's a miracle that John describes in three parts. The first part is the miracle itself, which surprisingly is just a mere seven verses. And the actual healing is one verse. In fact, it's just part of one verse. In uh, verse 7, the very end of the verse says that he went and washed and came back seeing. That's, that's all we're really told about this man's uh, miraculous healing. There's things leading up to it. But the miracle itself is a vast economy of words. Uh, uh, he he uh, goes, he washes, and he comes back seeing. That's the first part of these three parts that John tells us about, the miracle itself. The second part is a, is a, a debate which follows, and it's quite an involved debate, and it actually has multiple locations. It's a, a, a debate that actually spans 27 verses. Most of this chapter, most of this story, revolves around the debate about the miracle, which itself takes just a, a very short a bit of space to describe. And then finally, in the last seven verses, verses 35 to 41, we receive a God-given, 
Jesus' spoken explanation of this story. And we'll spend some time on each of these three parts. I want to start out with talking about the miracle itself. The first part that John tells us about this is just verses 1 to 7. As I said, according to all four gospel writers, Jesus healed the blind. Uh, There are multiple references to healings of this sort. Uh, There's the blind man at Jericho in Luke chapter 18, verse 35, and he's given a name in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. His name is Bartimaeus. He was the blind man uh, that Jesus uh, passed on the road to Jericho. The, The blind man heard that Jesus was there and called out to Jesus, and there's that story of a healing. Matthew tells a similar story, but when he tells the story of the healing of the blind in Jericho, it involved two people. For some reason, uh, that detail was important to, to Matthew, and so Matthew records that there were two men in Jericho. That's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 34. Uh, there's another cluster of, of healings of the blind in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a city that figures prominently in the Gospel of John. It's where Philip and, and uh, Peter and Andrew were from. And uh, there was a, a blind man in Bethsaida, Bethsaida, according to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, Mark actually mentions spit in his story. We're going to see how that plays into the story that John tells. Uh, again, Matthew notes uh, the healing in Bethsaida involved two blind men. Matthew alone records that there were two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29. So all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the fact that Jesus healed the blind. And I'd like to think with you about that just for a, a moment. We get so used to hearing it that we quit thinking about it. But if you've ever had a blind person who you loved... And that person had experienced blindness for a long time, maybe their whole life. It's worth pausing to know and to remember and to understand and to apply the fact that Jesus has the power to heal blindness. Now, that is a wonderful and exciting truth. It's part of what John is defining which is he's describing the power of Jesus. He's bringing us through this story to understand how these signs point to the power of Christ. Jesus is shown having power over illness and deafness and blindness. Uh, He has power over nature, as we saw last week. And we're going to see that Jesus has power even over death. Jesus is shown to have power power to speak a word of healing and it happens to walk on the the sea to to speak to the waves as some of the other gospel writers show us and to see the waves obey and the wind obey that's the jesus that we meet in the gospels the account of the one gospel the good news of jesus and so let's pause to just take that in for a moment uh What an amazing thing it is to think about in a church that prays. We just spent several minutes praying as Josh led us through our prayers as we prayed for all kinds of needs. The the reason we pray 
includes our confidence that God hears us when we pray. We all have had experiences of God answering our prayers. Um, I know I look back over my life and, and I see so many instances where in answer to prayer, God worked miracles, all kinds of miracles, including healing. I, I've experienced uh, healing in my life, in my family's life, in the life of people I know and love. I know what it's like to look at an experience and realize God has graciously, through his son, answered a prayer and healed. However, uh, just as it brings comfort and assurance knowing that Jesus has the power to heal, it brings with it a question. If he has the power to heal, why doesn't he always heal? Why doesn't he always heal? I've got many things I'm praying about in my life. I, I don't know how Jesus will answer those prayers. I know he hears me. Well, actually, John is giving us some clues about that. Uh, it comes in the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples. Look at verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, the disciples launch a theological discussion that's going to continue through the rest of the chapter. It starts with them. Uh, they see this blind man, and, and they want to debate the theology of it. They want to understand the theology of it. So they bring to him this kind of Jewish chestnut. And it's in, it's in the a book of Job. Uh, it pops up in different places in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. It pops up in different places in the New Testament scriptures. There's a, a tower that falls, and, uh, and Jesus is asked about that tower and the sinfulness of the people who were a part of all that. And it gets wrapped up in his explanation about sin. And so they want to Talk to Jesus about it. It's a sincere question by all indications. They really want to know. And so they come to him and ask him this question. Verse 3, Jesus answers, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. So he, he puts that whole part of the question straight away. He says, It's not for that reason. Someone doesn't necessarily suffer illness or hardship because of their sin. Now, sometimes they do but not necessarily. And it's never safe to assume that it's because of sin. In fact, in my experience, it very often isn't. It's, it's just the crazy world we live in, a, a world under the judgment of sin, but not an individual. Because of their behavior, do they necessarily suffer hardship? So Jesus puts that right to one side. But then he says this, but that the works of God might be displayed. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus gives us a little glimpse into understanding the algorithm of prayer. Uh, there is no doubt that Jesus Christ has the power to to heal all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of struggles, all kinds of problems. But God doesn't choose to always do that. Uh, 
And we're not really told exactly why, except, except that the way God does it through Christ is actually intended to display God's own work, his own power, his own work in the world where we live. He doesn't give us everything we wish for. He's not like a genie in a magic bottle who just gives us what we ask for. That's sadly what the way many of us sometimes think about God in prayer. He's like a genie. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of Jesus Christ, who himself prayed to his Father, and who himself received the answer, not now. Just in a few chapters, we'll see Jesus praying and receiving not the answer that he prayed for, receiving something else. And Of course, it was in answer to his prayer that not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus had this awareness of God's working in, in everything, in every circumstance. So yes, we bring our needs to the Lord. We present them to him with hope and confidence. But we do it ultimately knowing that God has a bigger plan. And while it may not always be exactly what we want, it is exactly what we need. And so Jesus says, uh, this man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. No, he's, he's in this situation at this moment so that what will happen will happen. What I'm about to do, I will do for this very moment. And so Jesus did something odd. It's, it's the only situation, Spitz mentioned in Mark's gospel, but this is the only situation where something like this is, is described in so much detail. It makes me think John has a point. Having said these things, verse 6, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And uh, John reminding us this was not written primarily for Jewish readers, not primarily for those who knew uh, Jewish terms or geography. Uh, Siloam, John tells us, means sent. So Jesus here pulls back the veil and says this man's blindness was so that God's power, God's power of work, would be visible. And so he, tell, he, he bends over and he spits and makes paste out of the mud. He makes mud, sometimes it's translated paste, out of the, the ground with the saliva. And he anoints the man's eyes with the mud. It's a very vivid picture. Well, theologians for a very long time have noted that when Jesus did this, he was actually recreating the creation where God is described in Genesis 1 and 2 as taking dirt, earth. The name Adam means earth, dirt. That's where the name comes from. Uh, God takes dirt and he creates Adam out of the, dirt, the dust, out of the dirt, the earth. And here in John's gospel, Jesus is shown in this act of creation, recreating the man's eyes. I, this, uh, this week I've been reading about ophthalmologists 
and what ophthalmologists see when they read this passage. And it's interesting how an op- a Christian ophthalmologist reads this passage and points out how someone who was born blind, it meant they didn't have the equipment. It wasn't just a matter of fixing something that was broken. Uh, they very likely didn't have the genetic equipment to be able to see. So what, what Jesus is doing in this miracle is he's recreating the eye, the human eye, with mud and spit. He anoints the man's eyes, and Jesus recreates a human eye. I mean, that's just staggering to think about. But that's what Jesus is shown as doing. That's the power of the one whom we worship. He has power, and he uses it to show the glory of God for our good. For our good. I'll say more about that in a moment, but that's the miracle. And it's, it's with exclamation points. Each of the signs, each of the miracles in John's gospel, they're building. Next week, we'll see sort of the exclamation point of exclamation points uh, in terms of the, the works that Jesus did, showing the power of God, the work of God. Uh, so this one is, it's right up there. The thought that Jesus could create a human eye. That's the, the story of the miracle. And there's a lot packed into that seven verses, isn't there? That's the, that's the Jesus in whose name we gather today. It's the Jesus to whom, through whom we pray, to whom we look with hope in the midst of all the challenges that we face in life. Confident that he has the power, and more importantly, he has the plan. He has the purpose. And all of our prayer requests, all of our heart's longings, are caught up in his plan and in his purpose. All of God's works. He is actually the light in the world, showing, demonstrating the power of God and the purposes of God, all of it for our good. We'll see about that in just a moment. So this seven-verse miracle launches a multiverse, 27-verse debate. (laughs) Uh, There was considerable debate. Uh, There was debate about the authenticity of the miracle. In verses 8 to 12, they have a debate with the neighbors. And there's just a basic question, are you sure this is that guy? I mean, that man was born blind. And now I I can see that he can see. And he's no longer reduced to begging, as a blind person would be in the ancient first century. He's no longer a beggar. He's, He's able now to support himself. That's the picture. He's no longer begging. So are we sure this is the same man? And so they have a discussion. The, the, the neighbors, the people who'd actually seen him, they have this debate. And it's, it's really a very practical question. Is this really the same guy? And it is. <clears throat> they establish it, that this is the man. Some said it looks like him. Uh, but he kept saying, I am that man. So then they say, well, if you're that man, how is it you can see? 
Again, a very sincere question. If, if that's really you, how can you see now? And he really doesn't have any canned answers. All he can say, verse 11, is, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and watch, wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So they established the authenticity. This really is that guy. His parents get involved in the next little section. It's established this is the guy. This is the person. There's also a debate about the miracle's spiritual validity. And this, this is the debate in a way the disciples started. Uh, they raised a theological issue in verse 2. And the rest of this section through verse 34 is, is a discussion, a debate about the spiritual validity, the, the appropriateness of what Jesus did. And the uh, debate starts with sin and the man's blindness and his parents' blindness. Sorry, his parents' sin, his sin and the parents' sin. Uh, but it moves from that into the Pharisees' favorite chestnut, which was the, the Sabbath. One of the patriarchs, uh, one of the uh, patristic authors, I should say, of the church points out that because this happened on the Sabbath, Jesus was doing it on purpose to highlight what he was doing. He actually did this act of mercy on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees want to talk about that. That was something they always liked to attack Jesus about because they thought they had it all figured out. They had their rules and regulations. Jesus seemed to disregard them. And he saw it appropriate and valid to heal a blind man on the Sabbath, and he did. But they want to discuss it. They want to debate it. So they interview the man. Actually, what they do is they harass the man. They just won't let him alone. They keep pushing him. They keep putting him down. They call him a sinner. He's a sinner. They're sons of Moses, they say. He's a sinner. He's a son of sinners. He's born in sin. Picking up on a theme of the disciples' question. They want to insist that this man's blindness was related to his own personal sin. And that's the angle they take. They attack him, attack him, attack him. Actually, Jesus is not even a character in this, in, in this episode. The exchange is between the man, the Pharisees, his parents, and other observers. It's not really, Jesus isn't shown as being in the discussion. The debate is about him, but he's not there debating them. They're debating other people about him. But there's this debate about the validity of what Jesus did. Uh, they use uh, very, very... Uh, harsh language in, in dealing with this man. They, they, they treat him with all kinds of disrespect and unkindness. And he can't believe it. At one point, uh, they come to him and they say, Who, the, the God doesn't, can't have done this. This can't be the work of God. And the man's answer is so simple. He says, I, I can't believe that you don't know that only God can heal the blind. Only God. Of course, he's not making that up. He's actually making reference to passages that are in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament actually makes it plain that healing the blind was something that God did. But they didn't want to accept that. They didn't want to see that. It didn't fit in with their narrative. And so they wanted to attack the man. And, and the section in verse 34 closes very sadly they say, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? They say with a smirk, and they cast him out. 
They cast him out. Did they excommunicate him? I guess so. the, The picture is even more dramatic. It's like they cast him out of the community. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. It wasn't a liturgical thing. It was a physical thing, the way it's described here. That's not unusual, is it? The theological debates often lead to all kinds of unkindness and harshness. Um, This is Valentine's Day weekend, and we tend to think of uh, romantic love when we think about Valentine's Day. We give little uh, Valentine's Day cards with little hearts and boxes of candy and flowers. Um, But actually, the first St. Valentine, the the man for whom February 14th was originally set aside, um, was a martyr of the church. Saint Valentine. He really was a saint. There was a lot of legend around him. He's so old that they aren't sure of some of the details of his life. But there's not really much doubt that there was in antiquity a man named Valentine who was a martyr for the church, a martyr for Jesus, who who suffered hardship and even death for Christ. He was cast out. A Roman emperor, Claudius II, around the 270 AD time frame. Uh, had Valentine beheaded. That's not a very nice Valentine's Day image, I know, but it's the truth. And there's some suggestion that he was a minister and he chose to allow Christians to marry, to become husband and wife at a time when the Roman emperor wanted to put the emphasis on raising soldiers for his imperial armies. And so Valentine was willing to take a very difficult position and perform marriages for Christians in obedience to Christ rather than obedience to Claudius II. That's a legend, who knows, but it's a very, very old legend. Anyway, this blind man in uh, John chapter 9 was not the last person to suffer, to be punished, to be persecuted. Just a few pages over in the the book of Acts, we'll read about St. Stephen, who became the first Christian martyr who died, a deacon, who died for the sake of Jesus. And uh, this man who was cast out is just another example of those who suffer at the hands of the world for the sake of putting confidence in Christ. Even, Even the very simple faith that this man had was too much for the Pharisees. And they cast him out. And there are people still casting out those who put faith in Christ. We live in more and more a a time, a generation which is doing that. And I'm afraid we'll probably live to see more of it. My kids and grandkids will probably live to see even more than I do. That's the world where we live. It's nothing new. This debate is ongoing And the lines are still drawn in a very similar way. There are those like the blind man who is open. And there are those like the Pharisees who are not open. And that brings brings us to the last part of this passage in verses 35 to 41, where Jesus gives us an explanation for this story. Though... Up until this point, we've seen lots of demonstrations of Jesus' 
supernatural power over nature, over illness, uh, over all kinds of things. We've seen that again and again. But in this passage, we see a response. A response. And the response is a very interesting one. If you just look down at verse 38, Jesus has been speaking to the blind man. He's told him that he is the Son of Man. You have seen him, he says in verse 37. And then verse 38, uh, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. That's the only place in the Gospel of John where someone is specifically, explicitly said to have worshipped Jesus. Now there's going to be more that we'll see when someone gives voice to the words. But this man has the dignity in John's Gospel of being the first and so far the only person to have put two and two together and gotten four who actually had the eyes to see that Jesus isn't just a teacher. That's what, the, that's what the disciples called him. They called him a rabbi. He was a teacher to them at that point. He's not just the rabbi. He's certainly not someone to be opposed and hated. No, this man came to see in Jesus the healer of the blind, God himself, and and. Again, without words, we're not, we're not told his words, but his behavior, his actions show an attitude of worshipfulness towards Christ. His, just this kernel, this seed of faith that we begin to see in this man, uh, the first in the long line of people like you and me who worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. I said a minute ago that this table is open to any who know and worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It does not mean you can pass a theological exam. We don't do that at the Lord's table. You don't have to have all the answers to all the questions. In fact, the assumption is the more you think you've got it figured out, the more you need to reflect on what Jesus did. So the more we think we've got it figured out, the more careful we should be about our attitudes towards him. What's called for is humility. What is called for is a constant teachability, like this man, the, the man who was born blind. A constant teachability, an openness to Jesus. That's what Jesus is looking for, and that's what he calls belief. It's this man who is able to believe. And he's put in contrast to the religious experts who wouldn't believe. Their response was disbelief. He has a, Jesus actually has a discussion with the Pharisees about this very topic. They want to discuss with him at this point. He's, he's describing the discussion that they have had concerning him. And he says in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who, did no, who do not see me may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Of course, that was a rhetorical question in their mind. The answer was no, they could clearly see. But the answer was they were blind. They were blind. Because you see, we're all born blind. The advantage this man had was he knew it. The Pharisees wouldn't acknowledge it. They denied it. They thought they had it all figured out. They'd memorized all the statements. They knew all the right answers. 
and yet they were far from Jesus. Someone who is open to Jesus is infinitely closer to him than someone who knows all the answers but has no time for him, will not actually listen to him, will not actually humbly submit to him and walk humbly with him in mission, in service. You know, it's interesting. The man goes to a, a pool called Siloam, which means what? Sent. And boy, is he sent. He's sent to courts. He's sent to inquisitions. And he's sent to his own neighborhood. He goes as a witness. That's what sent people do. That's what happens when your eyes have been opened to faith you are sent to tell others, to go into the blinded world, to tell them the good news of the healer, to tell them the good news of Jesus, God incarnate. That's what the blind man did. And it's in stark contrast to the know-it-all Pharisees who would not submit themselves to him and did not want any part of his sentness. They had their little huddle. That's all that they were concerned about. They had no interest in the ne'er-do-well blind and the sinners and the, the rejects and the marginalized. They had no interest in them. But Jesus did. 